am Matt Robinson, Head of Nations and Regions for Tech UK, and thank you for joining our podcast today. Throughout this series of podcasts, we're going to be speaking with different people across the UK's tech space, and it's an opportunity to get behind the company name or brand and find out a little bit more about what people are doing, who they are, what they're working on, and what an exciting, interesting space the tech sector is, and to look at the impact it's having on people's lives, on companies, on different parts of the UK. So without further ado, let's meet our guest today. Chris, great to have the opportunity to speak with you today. Could you say a little bit about who you are, what you do and your company? Certainly. So thank you very much, Matt, for having us, uh, giving us this opportunity. So uh, my name is Chris Tate. I'm the Chief Executive Officer at Condatus. Condatus is a um, identity access management bespoke consultancy. What does that mean? Uh, I guess we design and implement large scale uh, bespoke solutions of a Microsoft product called Azure Active Directory B2C. Um, and we basically help organisations secure their digital front door. So if you want to control appropriate access to data for organizations, um, we help them uh, design and implement that. And that can be from large scale government organizations like DEFRA or Department of Work and Pensions. We work alongside colleagues for the NHS, but also some large enterprise organizations as well. Brilliant. So thanks, Chris. So what first got you interested in tech and the tech sector then? So I've had a quite a varied career. Um, my, at the start of that, um, gosh, nearly 30 years ago, uh, I was in the Royal Navy as a, uh, a helicopter navigator. So um, I learned how to look at radar and telecommunications, how weapon systems worked um, uh, and the hardwiring around that. Um, and whether it was uh, the principles of aviation or details of sort of radar and telecommunications and mathematics, um, that was the first sort of intro and I guess um, after eight years of that, it was working out how technology uh, could not only be provided in a defence environment, but also to enable uh, connectivity. Um, and so over the time, it's looked at um, micro radio links to um, uh, scanning up thalmoscopes for eye health, um, even sending data through light. So I think I've always then had a thirst for sort of breaking the boundaries and finding out how technology can uh, aid and uh, assist in sort of general living. Absolutely. And then, I mean, you have seen some huge changes in that technology in that time as well that's affected you and your business, I imagine. No, absolutely. Um, so in some aspects, it's been a case of uh, technology getting smaller and lighter and faster uh, when we look at semiconductors and Moore's law. But I guess in the software space, particularly around, around identity, it's moving everybody from uh, on-premise to on-cloud uh, and working with large cloud solutions providers. But now, considering the, the advent of um, decentralised identity and in some ways putting the identity journey or the whole sort of internet uh, capability back in the box of, of giving that power and capability back to individuals rather than it all being centralised with large corporates. So thinking about you, you and your work day, so what does a normal work day look like for you, Chris? Gosh, is there ever a normal day? I think in the past <laughs> two years we've uh, we discovered that normal has a, a completely new conversations. I, I, I'm very lucky. I live um, in the countryside south of Edinburgh uh, in the Scottish Borders Hills. So I've got a dog. Um, so uh, getting outside, getting some fresh air, walking her first thing in the morning. Um, my kids have uh, all left home to the university and working. So uh, my wife and I have a slightly quieter house. And then it is, it's, it's get stuck into it. The power of Microsoft Teams has been amazing the past couple of years. We can make connections really easily. I'm in the office a couple of days a week, but there's a lot of um, dealing with my colleagues. I think the job of a CEO is spinning money plates, being the jack of all trades and master of none. 
And then um, getting in touch with uh, with clients and partners. I've really enjoyed the past two weeks um, actually getting out, going down to London, meeting with colleagues from, from Gartner, from Microsoft, from large organizations, and guess helping them provide solutions. It's difficult to try and get the work-life balance right. I think the one thing as a CEO, uh, the work never stops. But yeah, certainly trying to wrap up of an evening, maybe try and go for a run on the hills or get out on my bike, get a bit of fresh air. And then, yeah, like everybody else, binge on those box sets. And I think we've spoken to a number of tech leaders, people who are CEOs through to new starters in the tech sector. And actually, so many of them have said well-being. Um, and you mentioned it there, getting out, actually getting some fresh air, walking out with the dogs, that, that time to escape from work and maybe think for a CEO that would seem incredibly important as well. And and do you iron out that time so and carve it out in your own day and make sure that that happens or is it trying to squeeze it in? It's 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 a tough one, to be honest with you. Um, my wife sort of, uh, she, she does yoga and she's really good. I, I can barely touch my toes. But <laughs> getting out, I think it's that it's that mindfulness and you're absolutely right. I don't tend to listen to music or, or do anything and I'm, I'm quite a solo sort of um, exerciser, but in some ways it's that um, whole sort of Zen thing is that it lets your mind assimilate what's happened through the day and you can sort of deal with stuff. Uh, Strava has been a great app for that. So I, I like using Strava just to sort of map my runs, make sure I know, you know, I'm, I'm achieving what I want to achieve. I guess I haven't been as good getting out as often as I'd like, but it is, it's always that, like, let's get out for a run. Let's get out on the bike. Let's let even just go for a walk sometimes is, is what, is what we need. I guess the other thing on, on mental health is we have focused on a business on that quite a lot. So we've got mental health first aiders and we've been looking at how we can facilitate that for our staff to give them that space. And they're not, rather than working from home, they're not living at work. I, I just, you know, I'm keen to pull, probe that a little bit more, actually, Chris. See that mental, aid, uh, mental health first aiders. Um, what have your colleagues responded like to that? Have they they've taken that on board? Has that been something that people are really embraced? Have you had to try and persuade them and, and coax them on this? No, it's it's been really exciting. Three people volunteered. We're only an organisation of 40 people, but three people volunteered for that. We've had breakout sessions uh, every other Thursday for managers to just consider how we help lead and manage our teams. We've been looking at flexible working arrangements just to make sure that people understand those peaks and troughs that we all go through. Um, and also providing, we've done some um, online fitness courses for people, including Pilates and uh, and. Um, uh, some sort of just general aerobics to try and make sure people understand that taking time out in the middle of the day or just taking a break from your screen uh, is really important to get that sort of work-life balance. So thinking about you then, what are you currently learning, working on, what's currently driving you? No, it, so I guess from our point of view, it, it's it's scaling up as a business. Um, it's, it's really exciting time. Digital identity, I guess the one upside of COVID has, has made people uh, become aware that providing access to their teams, their clients, their partners, their patients even in a remote setting is really important. And what we're finding is it's about educating and helping educate the market of the art of the possible. Although we're only a small organization, you know, whether it's for, like I said, the NHS or a nuclear power station like Sellafield or a university even in Australia, we're helping people understand how digital identity can enable clients. So at the moment for me, it's trying to learn from my team. We've got literally world-class developers, and I'm always amazed at the level of technology and understanding they have and how they're bringing it to bear with clients. So I, I guess, do I always feel on the back foot? Yes. Do I have imposter syndrome? Also, yes. But I guess the delightful thing is the, the team we have around us are all subject matter experts in their own area. And I'm always, I guess, having a thirst for knowledge to see if I can sort of um, help and work alongside them. Absolutely. And what do you find is the most 
exciting part about your job? I think it's seeing those solutions come in place for clients and getting that feedback. We've been working, for example, with DEFRA now for over two years. We helped define their digital identity strategy document. And then we just continue. What we like to do is become a part of their team and to listen and work with them. And what's been fantastic is having the feedback. So um, one of the deputy directors saying that the engagement they had with, with Condatis is their best one they've ever had. And to get that really positive feedback means that what we're doing as a client is making a tangible difference to, to, to customers. I think that's the most satisfying thing. And, and seeing the, the, the sense of, of pride and self-worth that, that our team have when they get that client feedback, that, that's always really um, heartwarming. I think that feedback is so important, as you said, for the team, as well as uh, for yourself, knowing that it's actually making a difference to, uh, to people and, and to what they're delivering. Uh, absolutely. I mean, we have we've implemented um, a team one to ones um, every week, actually. And what it uh, enables us to do is get a really regular heartbeat of how the team are feeling, what they're uh, working on. I'd say that there are ups and downs that people have, but they, it's um, it gives them an opportunity and a voice to sort of speak about the, the things that are coming along, but also um, an opportunity to give feedback of. Uh, and it's great to give positive feedback um, saying, you know, great job. Well done. That was a fantastic. So that's been really nice to be able to do. Well, thinking about you as well, so you're obviously CEO of Condatis, but if you could do any other job, Chris, what would that job be? It's a really interesting question, Matt. I mean, I've been fortunate, I guess, already in my career to have, I guess, sort of two significant sort of things, you know, one in the military and then and the past 20 odd years in business. I kind of wonder, you know, I uh, sometimes when I go running, uh, I run past or through a golf course. And it sounds really funny, but cutting the grass at a golf course, you know, it's just that, you know, completely different. Uh, can you imagine getting up early and it's like five in the morning, going cutting the grass? I don't really play golf. Uh, I have a set of clubs uh, and they stay in my garage. Uh, but it's just that sort of thing of the 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 tranquility and the peace and quiet. Maybe in, in 10 or 15 years, you know, that would be something to do for a while. Either that or, or to have a boat and just, uh, you know, sail around the Mediterranean. Um, I, I love being near the water and uh, having the peace and quiet. So maybe something completely non-tech um, in the years to come. I thought you were going to say Tiger Woods there for an interesting moment there. Didn't you say it's <laughs> Yeah, that would be interesting. So thinking about when you were growing up then, and, and you mentioned you know, going into the military, but who inspired you when you were growing up? I guess to two two people in particular. One, I did a lot of scouts um, when I was growing up. It gave me the opportunity. I wasn't particularly academic, but it gave the, me the opportunity to experience, you know, doing things in an outdoor space and even leadership at a young age. And it sounds trite, but just trying to get other young people doing things. I, I think for, for me, scouts is amazing. And I, I went on and then went to the Himalayas when I was 17 and things like that. So that was amazing. And my scout lead at the time put a lot of trust in me just to sort of help sort of me grow and develop and the other one was my music teacher at school i went to a school that had a you know a really broad section of extracurricular activities but a guy ian phipps he's i think he's actually quite well known for teaching a couple of people who are now very well-known personalities but he he put a huge amount of energy into what he did and listening and inspiring people and i try and put a, a little bit of that sort of energy and enthusiasm into what i do when i'm fully doing the best i can as being a ceo so I think a good teacher is so important um, for young people in education. And we all remember a great teacher as well. No, absolutely. And there are, it's a very formative time when you're going through education. And, and like I say, some people find that academic studies really sort of easy, straightforward and simple. For other people like myself, it's about finding a different route through that. So somebody who maybe listens to you or, or gives you that sort of guiding light of what good can look like, I think is, um, is really important. You mentioned there about it been a formative time. If you could go back and 
give some advice to your 16 year old self what would it be yeah it's a really tough one i i, I think um I think have the confidence of your own convictions because I think for a lot of people there is a a standard a linear trajectory through life. You know, you, you do your well back in my day, O levels and A levels, go to university and maybe a postgrad and get your first sort of postgraduate career, and people take that route. But you see amazing world leaders like sort of uh, Richard Branson um, or Elon Musk who, who don't necessarily follow a linear trajectory. So it's you know. At 16, I think you have a, a lot of self-doubt, thinking, am I doing the right thing? But actually, go for it. Um, you know, uh, ha- have a go at things. Um, try. To fail, actually, is is not a bad thing. And I think in the UK, sometimes we look at failure as a negative. I think maybe our colleagues uh, across the water in the States have a different view on failure that actually to fail, you, f- you find a lot about yourself. Um, so sometimes being acceptance of failure and, and bouncing back from that would be um, would be interesting. But I think... I see it with my children these days who are all young adults. There's so much pressure in social media to, to always be be seeing to be, you know, on top of things, whether it's on Instagram or Snapchat and things. And I think sometimes to have a little bit of the acceptance of your own vulnerability uh, and that you're not going to get it right, but to to be confident in that and, and you'll find a good way through it. I think that's a really great advice because we know that actually you can learn from those failures and it's what you learn that may improves you. Uh, as an individual, as a leader, as a, as a business as well. Um, so I think that's, that's great advice. Um, now, thinking about you, Chris, and you were saying about your day and going out on a run, so I think I might know what the answer is, but we'll we'll see. What's the piece of tech that you couldn't live without or has changed your life? I guess on an everyday basis, I use a Microsoft Surface, and it is fantastic. I got one about uh, eight years ago, and I always having had a laptop, I you know, love a laptop, but actually a Surface is so small and light, and you just pop it in your your bag and, and and it's portable but i guess that's kind of a worky thing what i did invest in for a significant birthday just over a year ago uh is my first smartwatch so i've uh, i've got a Garmin phoenix success i have very slim wrists so a small watch but it's amazing it does everything from telling me how little sleep i've had uh, what my heart rate's doing and can map my runs uh, and i was running up in the cairngorm mountains a few weeks ago and it even did my navigation for me sort of saying well i've done like 20 odd kilometers i said you've only got another 14 kilometers to go i was like oh god so, so no, I, I love this, and, and it's funny. My wife got a similar one, and I recommended it to, to a colleague. So, yeah, I, I'm not on any sort of commission, but I've got to say the Garmin watches are fantastic. There we are. Other watches are available. I should, should Indeed, I'm sure they are. <laughs> <laughs> um, and thinking about the, the tech sector, then, so you know, what tech innovations or areas of tech do you think are going to be the most exciting or interesting, or, or, or change lives the most over the next ten to twenty years? You hear people who have titles of like futurologists and, and you see companies, uh, I've been lucky enough to be in Silicon Valley a couple of times, and you see the amount of investment organisations are putting into uh, what might come down the track. I think the metaverse will happen. There's there's a huge amount of speculation of, of what's going to happen. And it's funny, my, my youngest son loves the book Ready Player One, which you know maybe gives an insight to the, what that might look like. For me, that's um, both an opportunity, but also quite a scary place. I personally love the great outdoors and being present and being in a real space. And yet we were around at some friends recently who had the um, uh, 3D um, sort of virtual reality specs and, and they are incredible and they can be fun. So I think that whole piece of virtual reality will uh, advance significantly and, and the advantages around machine learning and, and uh, artificial intelligence. But I guess the one that... Um, I see making the most difference to humans and individuals themselves is the 
the whole technology around decentralized identity and distributed identity because what we're seeing right now are for a long time we've been reliant on logins and passwords uh, and trying to make sure that we remember them and have them stuck under a table or put under a phone or something or then reliant on huge organizations like google or facebook giving us access to to um things and uh, i guess profiteering from our own uh, identity and in some ways what i'd like to be able to do is to help enable a transformation of that in which people can hold data just like they do their current wallets or your passport you know, you're issued with it by the UK government or whichever government, uh, and you choose to show your passport, your driving license to whomever you like to to prove how old you are, which country you're from. And it would be great to suddenly say, well, actually, rather than that being reliant on a, a large scale corporation, you hold that data yourself uh, and you can make it available for people, whether it's for accessing the metaverse, whether it's for getting into a bar to show you're 18 or 21 or to board a plane or to access medical services. And we've had discussions with people in the UK, um, with people spun out of um, MIT or or in uh, North America, and the whole piece of how digital identity can suddenly become maybe back with the individual and they own that rather than it being owned by somebody else, I think could be really transformational for how people approach and feel about the internet. And I'm just going to probe a little bit further there, Chris, if that's okay, which is, you know, we talk about data so much and people being empowered by their own data. I think you said it there, you know, getting hold of their own data, understanding their data. Do you think people really understand their data at the moment? I guess honestly, no. Uh, it, it, it's a straight way of putting it. Um, a, a lot of people have access to a variety of social media platforms and they use, you know, for their own benefit, you know, whether it's posting holiday photos or or making a new work connection on LinkedIn or, or seeing what people are doing at a, at a party or, a, a, you know, um, some social event, which is fantastic. But that data obviously carries significant value. You know, you look at the Nasdaq value of some of these large companies and their ability to um, get licensing uh, and advertising revenues. But the amount of data that's there and you see these huge data storages, that's great. And there are huge advantages of that. But to feel that you are um, in control yourself of your data, um, I think um, could be incredibly powerful because more and more data for individuals is online. We know we hold fewer and fewer things in paper in, in that sort of format. And I think also the coming together, the, the synergy of those different strands of data um, can be quite empowering for people. And you want to feel it's safe. You know, some things, um, you know, I've we still have some older relatives in our family, but um, you see them sort of glaze over when you talk about that. You want it to become easy. I think Steve Jobs, when he first came up with the, the scope, it's just been sunsetted, but the iPod, you know, it has to be able to hold uh, a thousand songs, be available by Christmas and be used by his grandmother. You know, um, I think keeping it simple. Um, so if we can make the technology simple and accessible, that will be really important. Absolutely. And in closing then, so thinking ahead, what do you see as the biggest challenges in the next few years for the tech sector? I think um, we're in for a period of sort of twin uh, challenges in both directions. There are obviously some challenges on, on sort of economic, uh, climate and societal changes. So I think whether it's uh, inflation um, or, or global warming, those are real um, challenges that are going to hit the global economy. But also I think on the back of um, the, the COVID pandemic, I think there is an opportunity for significant economic growth. Uh, and with that, I think it's going to be different. You know, the UK has already transitioned um, significantly from a manufacturing uh, sector into a service sector and software, are, you know, that's a service that we provide. But being able to scale up significantly, you know, we already have um, 
a multinational, multicultural workforce, which is fantastic. But you know, where are we going to get those uh, additional um, areas of talent? Um, you know, we are in now. We're out of a single market. You know, we have a finite um, uh, availability of talent. We started to grow grow our own. Um, put it that way. You know, we we liaise closely with the universities, but we may be looking for our workforce to double in size over the next three to five years. And I don't want to dilute that team. Uh, we are very lucky to have extremely high skilled, I would say, world class developers. Um, so to get more of those. And people who have experience and identity, um, it's taken us sort of 10 years to become an overnight success. So um, those people take a long time to develop and grow and know the technology. It, it will be great, I think, coming all the way back to schools to see schools spend more time, you know, rather than thinking how PowerPoint or Excel or Word work. Actually, in IT, they should be thinking about um, programming, getting kids maybe with Raspberry Pis, looking at how they can have interfaces with very simple devices like maybe a solar panel or a weather station and gathering data that way. Um, so getting people coding at an earlier stage, I think it might not fix things for the next two to five years, but maybe in 10 years time, we would have a whole new um, generation of people who are similarly excited by technology. So that investment now seeing the payoff for the future. No, absolutely. Um, and, and you see it with young people. Um, I was amazed, you know, um, one of my kids built a computer from scratch, you know, all the different parts. I think it was frightening when uh, he was asking us how much his, um, his, his graphics cards were going to be. My wife thought it was the price of a whole computer. But what he's able to do and, uh, and when you see people getting excited by tech uh, and being able to do that from as an individual, um, I think is amazing. So, yeah, get them involved in, uh, in tech early uh, at primary school. Uh, get them coding at that point is there's never um, I think you're never too young to have a go. Chris it's been brilliant to talk with you thank you so much for taking the time uh, to talk with us about your experiences as CEO about what Kundartist does uh, and some of your observations about what's going to be the impact and what the challenges for the tech sector as well uh, thank you. Thank you very much it's been a pleasure thank you. Thank you. <laughs>